Section 29 of the Medici, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Medici, Volume 1, by G. F. Young. That movement, which exercised a permanent influence on so many others, had its effect also on Botticelli. The entire change in the mental atmosphere of Florence wrought by Savonarola during the years 1494 to 1498, caused a no less radical change in the character of Botticelli's pictures, so that we have now a third period in his painting. Just as Cronaca could talk only of Savonarola, so could Botticelli now paint only pictures which repeated the impassioned sermons of Florence's great preacher. Henceforth we have no more pictures from him of graceful Greek goddesses and classic myths, but picture after picture on the one subject of the Blessed Virgin and Child. The same train of thought runs through them all. No longer does Botticelli paint her in all the joy of the Magnificat. It is now the sorrow of the Madre Dolorosa that is set before us, and with every variety of illustration." and in this too there is a distinction. It is not as the sorrowing mother beneath the cross that she is depicted, but as the young mother with the ever-present sword of foreboding sorrow piercing her heart with the knowledge of that which was to come, of which others around her were ignorant, and in which therefore they could afford her no sympathy. Sometimes it is the mother alone who feels this foreboding sorrow, Sometimes it permeates both mother and child, but whether in her alone or in both, this is always the prevailing thought. Speaking of these pictures, Steinmann says, A presentiment of coming woe seems to cast its shadow on the virgin's soul. She embraces the child with a half-repressed fervor of passionate love, but all the time the shadow of an underlying sorrow makes the flame of joy burn dimly. All this is in accord with Savonarola's sermons, and here we see painting able to bring to our minds the words of a preacher dead four hundred years ago. In doing this, Botticelli introduces many touching details by which to bring his point home to those to whom he speaks. As examples, the following may be taken. The Madonna of the Pomegranate This picture, in its original frame, hangs in the Tuscan room of the Uffizi Gallery. The child Christ holds in his left hand a bitten pomegranate, and looking with a sad expression straight at the beholder, holds up his right hand in blessing. Steinmann says, In this picture both child and mother are more than ever conscious of bearing the burden of all the sorrow of mankind. He considers this to be Botticelli's best picture. Hanging as it does opposite the Madonna of the Magnificat, the two are well placed for comparison, the one painted in Botticelli's earliest years, the other not less than thirty years afterwards. The keynote of the one, humility, of the other, foreboding sorrow. The Madonna and Child in the Brera Gallery, Milan In this case the child is sitting on the Virgin's knee, 
and is playing with a rough wreath of thorns and three nails, and looking up at her in wonderment at her sadness. The Madonna and Child in the National Gallery, London The Virgin embraces the child who stands on her lap. He looks in her face, seeking the cause of her sorrow, while her face and attitude express a deep tenderness penetrated, as usual, with a profound sadness. This picture has been a good deal damaged in its travels, but the damage has spared the face of the child Christ, which is particularly beautiful. The Madonna of St. Barnabas, painted for the convent of St. Barnabas and now in the Accademia delle Belle Arti, Florence. This picture has suffered through damage in removal and attempted restoration as regards the face of the child Christ, which has been quite spoiled. But the rest of the painting is beautiful, and it is one of Botticelli's most admired works. Two angels stand on either side of the Madonna and child, one holding up before her a crown of thorns, and the other three nails, while two more angels hold back the curtains of the throne. The Virgin looks straight out before her with a sweet, sad expression. Six saints stand before the throne representing six different types of mankind. Saint Michael, manly strength and beauty. Saint John the Baptist, asceticism. Saint Ambrose, the strong practical bishop. Saint Augustine, theological learning. Saint Barnabas, unselfish devotion to the consolation of the miserable and oppressed, and St. Catherine, womanly feeling. Steinmann, remarking on this picture, says, It would seem as if Dante's wonderful characterization of the Virgin struck the keynote of the whole picture, viz. his words, Umele ed alta, più che creatura, humble and high beyond all other created being sitting on her throne under the velvet canopy, affectionately served by angels, venerated by saints, she yet can feel no joy. She gazes straight out before her, with a sad, faraway expression in her eyes, humble and high in truth, yet sighing under the weight of her destiny and with the sword already piercing her heart. In one other point, noticeable in all these pictures, Botticelli differs markedly from the artists who were to follow in the next generation, led by Michelangelo. Botticelli forces our whole attention on the subject, not on the painter. In looking at them, it is not of Botticelli that we think. As Steinmann says, There was never a painter who so entirely forgot himself in his subject. And in these pictures, he has concentrated his whole thoughts on the character of the Madonna, and there has been none since his day who was so unwearied in inventing new modes of treatment which would both bring the virgin and child into human closeness to the beholder and at the same time arouse his awe and veneration. But a time came when, instead of Florence being swayed by Savonarola's sermons, it condemned him and put him to death. And for those who revered him, the only feeling left was horror, both at the crime itself and at the reign of anarchy and vice that succeeded it. And so now again we have a complete change in Botticelli's pictures, 
caused by the change in the circumstances around him, and have the pictures of his fourth and last period. In this there are, besides the sketches illustrating Dante's poem, only two pictures, but they are notable ones, viz. one calumny, now in the Uffizi Gallery, Florence, its general idea taken from Lucian's account of a picture on that subject by the Greek painter Apelles, and two, the Nativity, now in the National Gallery, London. The drawings illustrating Dante's Divine Comedy were executed at various times between 1492 and 1497, but were left unfinished. Botticelli, the ardent partisan of Savonarola, being thenceforth entirely engrossed with the tragedy of the latter's end. The celebrated picture of calumny is thus described. The scene is laid in a stately judgment hall in the classic style, on the decoration of which every resource of art has been expended. Between its lofty arches there is a distant view of a calm sea. Life-sized marble figures stand in the niches of the pillars of the hall, like figures outside Or San Michele, and every vacant space is adorned with richly gilded sculpture. It is a magnificent Renaissance building which fancy imagines a place in which wisdom and justice alone would exist, a place of refuge in which poets and thinkers may prepare new intellectual achievements as they walk in this stately portico by the sea. Instead of this, we witness a fearful deed of violence. In bitter contrast with the splendid marble all round, in ironical mockery of the solemn statues of justice and virtue on the walls, a noisy throng is dragging the innocent victim of calumny before the tribunal of the unjust judge who sits with crown and scepter on a richly decorated throne. Two female figures, ignorance and suspicion, whisper in the long ass's ears of the unjust judge, while in front of him Envy declaims with imperious force. With his right hand Envy leads on calumny, who holds a burning torch before her as a treacherous symbol of her pretended love of truth. She dashes impetuously forward, with her left hand grasping mercilessly the hair of her victim, who lies on the ground stripped naked, with his folded hands raised to heaven in assertion of his innocence. Calumny's appearance is plausible and crafty. Her clothing is costly, and her two attendants, fraud and deception, are busy twining fresh roses in her golden hair. Behind these, as what follows from injustice and cruelty, comes the tormentor, remorse, a hideous hag clothed from head to foot in ragged mourning attire, who, clasping her trembling hands before her, turns her face round over her shoulder to look at the figure behind her of naked truth, a slim female figure recalling Botticelli's Venus, who gazes upwards and lifts her right hand to heaven in adjuration against the scene of injustice, cruelty, and wrong. Now, what does all this mean? At first sight, this picture repels us by its strange scene of grotesque violence. But it has its meaning in the history of the time. For in this picture, Botticelli writes for those who may come after, 
the story of how Savonarola was done to death. In the stately Renaissance hall, the refuge for poets and philosophers, with its solemn statues of wisdom and justice, and its profuse decoration by arts, Botticelli represents Florence as for sixty years it had been. In the unjust judge, with his ass's ears, seated on a throne with crown and scepter which he is not fit to bear, and in the scene of violence enacted in front of him, the painter represents the government of Florence as it had become, still occupying the localities where such different sentiments had once prevailed. In the figures of ignorance and suspicion, envy and calumny, fraud and deception, he represents the motives and the methods which had prevailed to put to death their victim, Savonarola, while the figures of remorse and truth embody Botticelli's prophecy of what shall afterwards follow. This picture was painted by Botticelli for his friend Antonio Segni in the year 1498 or 1499, and it is stated that it was not allowed to be seen by the public eye until after Botticelli's death. If so, this would help to confirm the above theory as to its meaning. It is, of course, deeply interesting, both on account of the great preacher himself, and also as the powerful record given by one then living as to the way in which Savonarola's life was taken, and how false were the lies which then, and for many years afterwards, were sedulously promulgated regarding the self-accusations declared to have been made by him under torture. And then we have another strange picture, the Nativity, painted at the end of the year 1500, Botticelli's last picture, now in the National Gallery, London. And this again refers to Savonarola, and to the state of things in Florence after his death. In an inscription written over it in Greek, Botticelli explains its meaning thus, this picture I, Alessandro, painted at the end of the year 1500 in the troubles of Italy, in the half-time after the time, during the fulfillment of the eleventh of St. John, in the second woe of the Apocalypse, in the loosing of the devil for three years and a half. Afterwards he shall be chained according to the twelfth of St. John, and we shall see him trodden down as in this picture." In the center is the usual group of the nativity, while right and left kneel the magi and the shepherds with angel pointing out to them the miracle. On the penthouse roof and in the sky, angels sing the Gloria in excelsis and dance hand in hand, swinging olive boughs and crowns in their joy. In the foreground, devils crawl away to hide in the rocks, while rejoicing angels fall on the necks of Savonarola and his two companions, the witnesses slain for the word of their testimony. The picture not only shows how deeply rooted was the memory of Savonarola in Botticelli's mind, but also it and its inscription testify to what was the condition of crime and vice which ran riot in Florence in these years, when Cambi tells us that citizens who sought redress in the law courts were frequently stabbed in the street the next night, judges pronounced iniquitous sentences, and there was no reverence for holy things or fear of shame. After this date Botticelli became too infirm to paint. 
He died in 1510 at the age of 64 and was buried in his father's vault in his parish church of Ognisanti. Footnote, Botticelli was buried with extreme secrecy, probably because he was a noted partisan of Savonarola, and his tomb still remains without any tombstone. End of footnote. Although Perugino belongs to Perugia, he painted for so many years in Florence, where all his best work was done, that he is always classed with the Tuscan school. When he died in 1524, he was almost the last of that great school which had given to painting its rebirth and had led the way in that art for over 200 years. Footnote. Lorenzo di Credi and Andrea del Sarto were the only two first-class painters of the Tuscan school who survived him, Andrea del Sarto by seven years and Lorenzo di Credi by thirteen years. End of footnote. Ruskin considers Perugino the culminating point of the Tuscan school of painting. Having spent three years in Florence as the pupil of Verrocchio, 1479-1482, and having executed various works there in the years 1486-1491, Perugino, in 1492, set up his studio in that city. Ruskin says, it is from this time that we date the great series of pictures in which he seems to carry to their deepest depth the expression of devotion, of self-sacrifice, and of holy grief. Perugino painted regularly in Florence from 1492 to 1498, and again during the greater part of the years 1501 to 1510, after which date he did little notable work, so that, all his best work was done during this period of the interregnum. As all know, he was Raphael's master, and he survived his great pupil by four years. Perugino has four chief characteristics. First, free open space, regarding which Mr. Bernhard Berenson says, Space composition is not an arrangement to be judged as extending only laterally or up and down on a flat surface, but as extending inward in depth as well. It is composition in three dimensions and not in two, in the cube and not merely on the surface. In this space composition, Perugino excelled all either before or after him. By regular gradations, his distances recede far into the background, giving a feeling of vast and limitless space. Second, aloofness in his figures. Dr. Williamson says, They stand apart from one another, connected by a thread of thought with each other, and with the central feature of the picture, but each of them in every other way self-contained. Third, his beautiful landscapes with distant hills bathed in a blue mist, revealing long stretches of fertile land on either side, with single trees silhouetted against the sky, and all bathed in pale golden sunlight. Fourth, a severe absence of strong action or excited emotion. Convulsive action was as much an offense to him as was its absence in his works an offense to Michelangelo. The joint effect of these four characteristics is to produce pictures breathing a wonderful peace. Regarding the entombment, now in the pity gallery, 
Dr. Williamson says, In this picture, space composition is seen in its full vigor. How vast is the space in which the episode is placed, and how wonderful the sense of immeasurable distance produced. How quiet is the atmosphere of the scene, how reverent and tender a mood it creates. The picture is one of the best Perugino ever painted. Each figure is distinct, self-centered, and enfolded in its own grief. It is a picture full of sentiment, yet sober and thoughtful. And regarding his baptism of Christ, now at Rouen, the same writer says, Around the two central figures are kneeling, angels and attendant figures, eight only in number, carefully graduated in size according to position, aloof, serious, and still. Away and away beyond is the rolling landscape with its exquisite hills and dainty detached trees standing out clear against the sky. On and on the eye travels, seeking to reach the limits of this limitless vision, and impressed more and more by the skill that painted in so tiny a compass so vast a scene. Of Perugino's masterpiece, his fresco of the Crucifixion, painted in the chapter house of the convent of Santa Maria Maddalena de Pazzi in Florence, it has been very generally felt that it is the most perfect representation of the Crucifixion ever achieved by any painter, while the whole picture breathes an indescribable spirit of peace. End of section 29